Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you back for some more half-assed history this week on the agenda. Going to be having a chat about the Fourth Crusade. And I'll tell you what, mate, if you thought that you were across the greatest comedy of errors in the history of our civilization, bloody well think again if you haven't heard about the Fourth Crusade because it is absolutely ridiculous what went on uh, through this whole uh, absolute debacle. So we're going to get into it, get stuck in and have a chat about what went on uh, back in the 13th century. This is a long time ago here. We're going back a fair few hundred years here to, uh, to again, this uh, this period known as the Fourth Crusade, and it all it all essentially came down to what what was going on with this bloke called Pope Innocent the Third. He called a crusade to recapture Jerusalem, very much the in thing to do back in those days, um, uh, from the Muslims who who controlled it at the time. Now, uh, instead of uh, doing this, instead of managing to capture Jerusalem for Christendom, uh, they basically stuffed it all up beyond belief and and made an absolute dog's breakfast out of the whole things. And this this whole sort of big schmozzle ended up culminating in them sacking a Christian city, the Christian city of Constantinople. So the Crusaders went off to recapture the uh, recapture Jerusalem from the Muslims, and instead they burned Constantinople down to the ground, again, a Christian city. So good stuff from them. Let's get into it and chat about exactly how this went down. We're going to go back even further to start off with in 1099. So in 1099, the Franks, who are the sort of the precursors to the, uh, the French, the Belgian, the Dutch, and the West German people here, they established the Kingdom of Jerusalem after the first Crusade. In 1187, Jerusalem, uh, which is, you know, along with much of the rest of this, this kingdom of Jerusalem, falls to Saladin. Now, you may have heard of Saladin, especially if you've uh, played Age of Empires 2. You'll, you'll know that Saladin was an absolute, an absolute fire cannon he was. And uh, he, he absolutely tore, tore it up from the, up and down the Middle East throughout that uh, period. And, and again, reclaimed uh, much of this uh, so-called Kingdom of Jerusalem. Now, two years later, uh, during the Third Crusade, the invading Christians actually managed to uh, some chuck some punches about here. But they couldn't capture Jerusalem uh, once again in this, during this, this Third Crusade. So this directly led to the Third Crusade. Crusade uh, a couple of years later, uh, which again was was a, an attempt to recapture this holy city. It's all about Jerusalem and all about the Christians trying to capture this, you know, what is a, you know a holy city for them as well. So. It does. Uh, it does kick off here with with Pope Innocent III. The, the story is sort of mainly revolve, revolving around him and his decisions, his actions, right? And so, in in eleven ninety eight, Lotario de Conti di Segni is elected the Pope. In in eleven ninety eight, on the eighth of January, now he chooses the name Innocent III, which I have to say, I find. Highly suspicious, highly suspicious I find it, but I can't find anything more on this bloke to indicate that the name isn't anything other than appropriate. But, you know, we all know what Catholic priests are like, so, you know, we don't want to go too, uh, don't want to go too far into that rabbit hole. Anyway, regardless of whether he's innocent or not, he wants to raise this grand army and take back Jerusalem, landing in Egypt and working his way northwards. This is uh, his, his grand plan here to capture the city. And so his first call to do this, his first call to get people up and about and ready to go in uh, in this fourth crusade is actually largely ignored. People aren't particularly interested in listening to what he's going to say. All the German states at the moment, they're not getting along too well with the Pope. And uh, surprise, surprise, France and England are a bit busy because, of course, they are engaging in their respective 
national pastimes of fighting each other at this point. So not too many people are particularly interested in, in listening to what Pope Innocent's having a chat about. But uh, nonetheless, he goes around, he's trying to arc up these blokes all around Europe, and, and he reckons he's actually done a, a fairly good job of it too by the end of things because um, he manages to secure a naval contract with Venice to transport a huge number of troops, over 30,000 troops he finally actually pulls together. And with this naval contract from uh, from the Venetians, he's now in a position to actually try to you know get the ball rolling on this whole, uh, this whole crusading business and, and, and get uh, boots on the ground over there uh, in the Holy Land. So... So essentially, in 1202 now, everything's ready to go. The, sa- the stage is set. All the arrangements uh, that uh, this Pope has made have, have been sort of set down in stone, and he's ready to get things going. The Venetians, they've, uh, they've got all their ships ready to transport this enormous army, and then they are just sort of twiddling their thumbs waiting for people to actually turn up. Because even though all these soldiers and all these people have, have answered the call to, uh, to the crusade, you know, over 30,000, as, as I said, most of them decide that they're actually going to make their own way there and not go by the Venetian Boat Express here, which is a bit of a bloody problem here for poor old Pope Innocent III because only 12,000 blokes actually rock up to board the ships. The problem is is that Venice, uh, you know, has expected 30,000. They've been contracted for 30,000 and they have held up their ends of the bargain by providing 500 ships ready to take this 30, 000, these 30,000 people across to Egypt. Um Venice demands full payment. They demand full payment from Pope uh, Innocent, even though they're not using all the ships. They still say, mate, listen, you ordered it, you know, you break it, you bought it, here are the ships. If you don't want to use them, that's not our problem. Stick it up your holy ass, mate, because you've got to still got to pay us what uh, what's due to us. So the the Pope is now 85,000 silver marks in the hole here. He's, he's a huge, huge amount of money that he's just not going to be able to pay. The Crusaders, they can only pay 40,000 silver marks, um, even after, you know, chucking out all the shrapnel, emptying out the pockets, all the shrapnel, all the tiny coins that, you know, just sort of sit in your jar in your bedroom, all chucked into the hat here as it goes around. But uh, the problem is, Venice is just, they are sticking to their guns here and they are saying that uh, they are owed more money and they are going to get it one way or the other, regardless of... Uh, of what Pope Innocent III thinks. Now, this is this is the point where we have to introduce another character, and I'll tell you what, what an absolute rock star this bloke is. I don't know if you've heard of Doge Dandolo. This bloke is old, he is blind, and he comes up with an incredible idea here for the Crusaders to pay back the money they owe. This guy, I'll tell you what, he did not muck about. He did not muck about, and you're going to hear exactly what he got up to, because uh, some of the ideas he had, I'll tell you what, geez, unbelievable stuff. So, Dandolo makes this proposal. He says... No worries, Pope, mate. No worries, uh, you know, Holy Father, you, you good fella. I'll take the Crusaders on the ships to Egypt just like you planned so you can do the big invasion northwards, whatever else, if and only if you go and absolutely wreck the port town of one of my major uh, financial rivals. So one of the major trading rivals of the Venetians is, is, is in the crosshairs here for Dandolo, and he says these Crusaders can go wreck this port town and they'll consider the, le- the, the, the ledger even. So... Dandolo wants this town, uh, which is called Zara. It's uh, it's in what's or it's called Zadar now, but it's in it's in Croatia. What today we call Croatia, and it's ruled over by King Emmerich of Hungary, uh, more or less under the control of him. A couple of little political sort of wrinkles there, but essentially King Emmerich of Hungary more or less controls this port town Zara, and uh, Dandolo he wants it sacked. He wants it burnt to the ground, um, and a bunch of crusaders because of course this is a a Christian city ruled by a Christian king. They're like, no, absolutely not. Not what I signed up for. Not going to do this. And uh, and they go back home. They turn they turn tail and they go back home because they're worried about being excommunicated. The rest of the army are like, 
no worries, mate. Whatever, whatever you want us to do, it's all the same to us. Put put a city in front of us, put a torch in my hand, and I'm happy. I'll, I'll burn burn anything you want down to the ground. Don't even worry about it. So the rest of the army they jump on the ships and they head off on uh, on the 10th or the 11th of November in 1202. Now, the Pope, he's heard of this funny business that Dandolo is being up to because Dandolo, you know, he's not being very forthright with the Pope about it. He's like, look, I've come up with a plan. Don't even worry about it. I've got your boys on board. We'll call it even if they just do this one little thing. Don't, don't even worry about it. Just I'll take care of the details. See you later. Don't even worry about it. Um, but the Pope, he's heard of these shenanigans, this chicanery that, uh, that Dandolo is perpetrating here. And he actually, once he hears that they're going to go and, and wreck a Christian city, he says, absolutely not. I forbid you all from uh, from attacking Zara. But uh, the leaders of the army don't share this message with all the rest of the Crusaders. They actually keep this, they keep it all secret, the uh, the orders from the Pope there. They don't tell any of them. So all the Crusaders, they don't know that they're you know basically risking ex- excommunication here from the Pope, and so they lay, lay uh, siege to the town. No worries at all. They get off these uh, these Venetian boats. They they encircle the town of Zara, and they're ready to uh, you know to, to starve them out like a, like a fox in its hole. So, the, the the town falls in two weeks, which is not very long. I have to say, not very long time that uh, that it managed to uh, managed to hold out. And in late November, the uh, the town of Zara eventually yes gives into these invaders. Now the Crusaders loot and pillage like there is no tomorrow, and even they are even fighting amongst themselves for the spoils. It is an absolute madhouse, right? When Innocent hears that this has happened, they've got all these crusaders that are you know, rampaging and looting through this city uh, and, and you know slaughtering other Christians. When uh, when Innocent hears about this, he excommunicates the lot of them. All of a sudden, this fourth crusade is going very badly because the main crusading force has just been ex- excommunicated, which generally is not how you want a crusade to go. Um, but again, the army leaders they don't tell all of these soldiers what's happened. They don't tell them. They don't tell them all that that, that Pope Innocent has excommunicated them. So they think they're doing God's work there. They think they're doing a fantastic job. No worries at all. Off on this crusade here and, and having a great time. So this is a, a little bit of a problem, to put it mildly, for Pope Innocent and, and his sort of uh, well-meant attempt to go and, you know, slaughter a bunch of Muslims. Instead, he's ended up essentially causing a, a Christian city in Zara to be to be attacked and, and, and had a bunch of Christians put to the sword instead. Now, it only gets worse from here, unfortunately, for poor old Pope Innocent, because as we say, it ends up with the sacking of Constantinople, which is a fair bit bloody bigger than Zara, I can tell you that. But how is it that that comes about? I mean, how you know we're planning to sail down to Egypt, invade uh, through through northern Africa, whatever else, up to, up around to Jerusalem. So how does Constantinople, which is obviously in in uh, modern day Turkey, it's Istanbul today, how does that even get involved in the first place? Well, great question. Calm down. I'll I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you right now. We're gonna zoom over to Constantinople now and have a chat about what was going on there politically. And, and you're going to have to sort of keep track of things here because it gets a little bit bloody confusing and, and you'll find out why. At the start of the 13th century, Constantinople is one of the oldest and it's one of the most developed cities on the face of the earth. It is the capital of the Byzantine Empire. It still has all the stuff left over basically from, from the days of the Roman Empire. So we're talking about baths and forums and monuments. And it's actually generally a pretty, a pretty bloody nice place to live considering the standard of living you know, throughout the world at this time, Constantinople really is, you know, a city of the future at this stage with much of the technology, the social policies, the, the you know, the, the general standard of, of, of sort of sanitation that was going on in the city. Pretty bloody, uh, pretty bloody nice place to live, it has to be said. 
So in 1195, just a few years before the uh, the crusade, the Fourth Crusade is called, the Byzantine emperor is a bloke named Isaac II. Now he is overthrown by his brother Alexios III in 1195, and this is because essentially Isaac II was an absolute idiot. He he had nearly emptied the treasury. He was absolutely terrible on the battlefield. He'd made sort of all these great gifts of, of weapons and military hardware to all of his supporters, which you know, sort of adversely to what he was planning to do, had strengthened many of the people he, he ruled, many of the people that were directly under him, and it, as a result weakened the overall empire because the people that he was supposed to be overseeing had a lot more military might than they did beforehand. So this bloke just, he, he couldn't, you know, he couldn't find his ass with both hands. He didn't know what was going on, and he's basically a terrible emperor. So as a result, Alexios III um, uh, overthrows him, and even after having, you know, sort of, you know, done in his own brother in this way, Alexis III, he's no better at all. He didn't care about diplomacy at all. He, he, and he actually did. I mean, his brother came close to emptying the treasury, but Alexis III actually did empty the treasury, drove the, uh, drove the empire bankrupt um, by, by doing a bunch of embezzlement. He just embezzled, embezzled all this money out of the, uh, out of the imperial treasury and, uh, and generally just mi- mismanaged everything into the ground. Now, this is where it's going to start getting confusing because... Alexios IV, who is the son of Isaac II, has had enough of his uncle's rubbish and he decides that he wants his throne back. So we've got Alexios III, who is the current emperor, whose brother, Isaac II, the previous emperor, has a son who is Alexios IV. So you can see not of a lot of in, you know, inventiveness when it came, came to in, you know, naming people in the, in the ruling family of the Byzantine Empire, but that's the way that it goes there. Now, this is where we have Venice come back in because Venice and Byzantium, they absolutely hate each other. They hate each other's guts. This is based on years of rivalry with politics and trade. And on top of that, this is where old mate Dan Dolo comes back into the picture. He was reportedly blinded by some Byzantines when he visited in 1171. So he's got a huge chip on his shoulder when it comes to dealing with these bloody Byzantines because, again, you know, this, this age-old grudge and rivalry that these two names have has really made him a very unhappy chappy. So, <clears throat> surprisingly, it's to the Venetians that Alexios IV, the son of Isaac II, it, he gets in touch with these Venetians and he offers to pay off the debt owed by the Crusaders and then, on top of that, pay the Crusaders 200 silver marks and, on top of that, provide an additional 10,000 troops for the Crusade and take the Crusaders to Egypt and give over the Eastern Orthodox Church to the papacy in Rome, but only, only, if these crusaders that Dandolo is currently in charge of come and help him recapture Constantinople from his uncle, Alexios III. Now, just think about that. Think about if this whole thing had gone to plan and, you know, this had been the outcome that uh, that the world had ended up with. There'd be all sorts of, you know, huge knock-on effects from from this taking place. But the biggest one, of course, is the returning of the Eastern Orthodox Church to the papacy, the reunification of of the Christian churches into one broad thing controlled by Rome. It would have been it would have been incredible. I mean these stakes are very very, very high. And as a result, the, win- the, the, um, the, the leaders of the Crusaders, they're wintering uh, in Zara, they have a good old think about this because uh, Alexios IV is making an offer that is 
pretty bloody tasty for them, and, and they're really thinking, giving it you know a good a good uh, fair, fair bit of consideration. They're holed up in Zara after having conquered the city. They decide to winter there, so they stay there for a couple of months from 1202 into 1203. And uh, Dandolo, believe it or not, he is absolutely up for this. Forget the fact that he hates all these Byzantines, uh, you know, and and he he you know can't stand the, the sight of someone like Alexius the Fourth. He is absolutely ready to go here because he wants to go and get up in the business of the Byzantines in a major way. He wants to go and absolutely wreck them and tear them to bits. Uh, never mind, you know, it's a Byzantine who's actually asking him to do that. doesn't matter. Any excuse will do for him. Um, but uh, the, the problem is he doesn't really believe that Alexius the, the fourth is, is going to come good on his promises. So he's, he's going into it thinking, well, I'll do it anyway, even though I'm not expecting this, this you know, this slimy bastard to, uh, to hold himself good to his word here. So by the way, I didn't mention this, Doge Dandolo, he's 90. He's 90 years old. He's blind. He's been fighting most of his life, whether it's, you know, in the in the counting house or on the battlefield. He's an absolute, he's a, he's one of the hardest bastards you're ever going to meet. And what he does is he goes around and he bribes a bunch of the other leaders of, uh, of the crusade here in order to support him. And eventually, as a result, most of the leaders of this army, they agree, this is the best course of action. Let's go and sack Byzantine. Let's go and sack the, the capital of the Byzantine Empire, a Christian city, Constantinople, on our way to reclaiming uh, Jerusalem and the Holy Land for, uh, you know, for, for the Christians. So that's, that's, the, that's the convoluted chain of reasoning that they all go through to get to this point. Um, however, I have to say, some of the leaders, they decide against this plan. They are not, not going to go and wreck another Christian city. And as a result, they got on their boats and they go straight to Syria and get stuck in in there. So you can see it's already just an absolute, you know, it's, it's an absolute big bowl of spaghetti. There's people coming and going and, and, you know, no one knows what's going on properly with, with this whole crusading business. But I tell you what, Doge Dandolo certainly knows what he's, uh, he's wanting to do. And as a result, the rest of the crusaders, they sign on with Alexios IV plan and they sail off to Constantinople, arriving there on the 23rd of June in 1203. So sure enough, all of these crusaders, they rock up to Constantinople with Alexios IV. And, and he, by the way, is expecting to be greeted, you know, and welcomed as a liberator from an in, this incompetent tyrant, his, his uncle Alexios III. Uh, so he sails by the city in, in these enormous big war galleys, 10 of them straight, uh, sailing straight past the city there. But the people in the city, they really don't give too much of a crap about what's going on here. They end up just sort of, you know, staring out at the uh, at the boats going past from the walls and some, you know, waving their bare asses at him. You're really not too interested in, in what this bloke is all about. Um, so uh, as a result, uh, Alexius IV is, is a little disheartened, but nonetheless... He gets on with the job at hand, and uh, and the Crusaders they all they all unload uh, on on the you know on the banks and, and and set themselves up to lay siege here to Constantinople. So they all assemble and they start to uh, to skirmish with the city's defences. And uh, you know there's a fair bit of fighting back and forth like this, but uh, you know all these sort of little squabbles and uh, and, and minor conflicts around the, the walls of the city. But eventually Alexius the Third he's had enough. So the, the current ruler he's had enough of this rubbish from his nephew, and he decides he jump, he jumps on his horse, he gets together eight eight and a half thousand. Men and he says, "Bugger this for a joke. Let's go and give this bloke a, 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 a you know a, a firm lesson in in how the world works." So, despite out <laughs> despite outnumbering the retinues that he was going to attack by two to one. Alexios the Third, after having lowered the gates and ridden out, you know, with this uh, with this eight and a half thousand strong uh, army of uh, of men, he absolutely craps his dax at the prospect of fighting. He cannot, you know, it, it, once he sort of 
marches out there and realizes what he's, he's got himself into. He goes, oh, bloody hell, I'm, I'm in way too deep here. And he turns around and marches. He runs, he flees. He flees straight back into the city like this and uh, you know, without actually ever ever attacking. So he's made this big show of, of saddling up, getting ready, big army, down come the gates, out he goes, oh, actually, no, not into this. Don't like this at all. I'm out of here. See you later. So obviously he's absolutely disgraced at this point because he's 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 made an absolute mockery of himself and of his you know any hope that he had of holding on to uh, to you know any position of leadership. So what does he do? Well, he goes down to the uh, the treasury, which of course you remember is is essentially empty at this point, and he nicks half a ton of gold and jewels. He nicks half a ton of gold and jewels and just buggers right off. Sneaks out of Constantinople and runs away. He takes as much as he can carry with all of his uh, you know his, his little uh, sort of uh, the entourage that he's got, and they get out of there quick, bloody smart. Now, after this, of course, the the Imperial Council have got very little left to do or to say about what's going on here. There's a big invading army out the front, and and their emperor has buggered off with the, with the town's riches, and they go, well, okay, yep, fair enough. Uh, looks like we're going to have to solve this problem. Alexios the Third was a tyrant; he shouldn't have been in, on the throne in the first place. And uh, now that he's gone, of course, we can give the throne to the rightful owner of it, and that is, of course, and Alexios the Fourth. He's sitting there, you know, like at the beginning of Arrested Development, where Michael is expecting to be made uh, charge of the company. He's sitting there, smiling at everyone. Everyone's smuggling, going, yes, yes, it's going to be me. And then the Imperial Council go, welcome back, your holy emperor or majesty, whatever. It is Isaac II. So Alexius IV has done all this work to capture Constantinople and the Imperial Council go right ahead and plonk his dad right back on the throne. Now, obviously, Alexius IV he is as mad as a frog in a sock about this. He cannot believe his luck. He is absolutely bloody hating it. But I'll tell you what, I'll tell you who else is hating it. It's the Crusaders. Because the Crusaders, they're not getting paid. They're not getting paid unless Alexius IV is crowned as the emperor. So they insist. They come out and, you know, they insist as a, a group of men with you know, swords and a bloodthirsty attitude uh, can, uh, they insist that, uh, no, Alexius IV probably should be emperor after all. So this means that uh, a short time later, Alexius IV is ultimately crowned as the emperor of, uh, of the Byzantines, but as a co-emperor with his dad. Now, he, you know, as you know, as you might imagine, he's not too thrilled about this. I mean, you know, it's better than nothing for sure. But uh, Alexius IV has done all this work and now he's having to share the throne. And uh, you know, the throne's probably not even that big. I don't know if it can fit two fully grown men sitting on its side. But I mean, maybe he's having to sit in his dad's knee and that's not a great position for any emperor to be in. Nonetheless, this is the way that it goes. And this is what happens here uh, when it comes to Alexius III, or Alexius IV, I should say. Sorry, even I'm getting confused about it. I've got it all bloody written out in front of me here. Uh, I mean, I just know it off the top of my head. I mean, of course, I just memorise it all because, yeah, yeah, forget about that. Anyway, um, Alexius IV, he's not a happy chappy, as, we, as you can imagine. Now, the other problem here is that Alexius IV, he actually realises he still can't pay the Crusaders for the job that they've done. There, there, there are a couple of reasons for this. And first of all, of course, you know, not he's co-emperor, so his dad's got to sign off on everything. But uh, the the other problem is the treasury, as you'll remember, has recently been completely emptied by his predecessor, Alexios III. So he's actually got nothing to pay the Crusaders with. Now, this is a little bit of a problem because the Crusaders, they're getting pretty ornery and they're not having a great time uh, with these empty pockets. So Alexios IV makes himself even more unpopular than he was already by insisting he orders a bunch of valuable stuff, like gold and silver, all these artifacts here, to be melted down. But these 
and it only ended up being worth about 100,000 silver marks. And the other thing was, I should mention, this is the very first thing he does as emperor. So imagine this, you know, he gets the, the crown plonked on his head, he's sitting there in his dad's lap, and he says, okay, first order of business, you blokes, go and melt down all of these, you know, priceless works of art, this gold and silver, so we can pay this uh, this invading army that's champing at the bit outside our walls. So the people of Constantinople were not impressed at all. Now, would you like to know what Alexius IV does in response to the, the civil unrest he is facing with all these people being unhappy about the Crusaders there? Well, obviously, Alexios is a bit worried for his life. He's a bit worried for the security of his, of his leadership. And uh, obviously, he, he decides the best way for him to sort of cement and, and uh, strengthen his grasp of power on the city and on, on the emperor, empire more broadly is through force of arms. And so what does he do to, uh, to raise himself an enormous army? He, he renews his contract with the Crusaders. That's right. He doubles down and decides, well, I've got this army here that they all hate. May as well keep them around just to keep the peace. This proved to not be one of the most stunningly brilliant ideas in, you know, in, in the history of, uh, of humanity, but that is the way that it goes. Now... Things, uh, a bit of a, a bit of a spanner gets thrown in the works here in the new year, in January 1204. Because at this stage, Isaac II dies, and everyone absolutely bloody hates Alexius IV, because he's kept these crusaders around, and, and all the people in Constantinople, they are bloody sick of it, and they don't want him there. So after the death of Isaac II, some people in Constantinople decide they're actually going to take it upon themselves to get this bloke off the throne. Alexius IV, they're sick of him, and they want to get rid of him once and for all. So it is this bloke, and I'm very sorry to say that his name is also Alexius, Alexius Ducas, right? He takes it upon himself he, to make a move here. He personally overthrows Alexius IV, if you believe it, with his, literally with his bare hands. He sneaks into the, uh, the imperial palace and he strangles Alexius IV to death. Right, so this bloke Alexius Ducas crowns himself now as Alexius V. Yes, of course, you couldn't have planned it any more perfectly. So, this is how things are looking here at the beginning of 1204. We have Alexios V, who has no formal agreement with the Crusaders, who has no history of dealing with these, uh, you know, again, these rather nasty butt blokes that are still camped out the side of the city walls, and now the Crusaders end up being pretty bloody furious that their boss has been murdered like this. They end up flipping the table and they attack the city out of rage and anger and frustration on the 12th of April in 1204. The Venetians, they rally themselves uh, on the water in their ships and uh, attack from the, attack from the from the harbor and the soldiers attack on foot and they absolutely give the city the business good and bloody proper by the 13th one day after this uh, this attack begins they have captured the city it takes a day for constantinople to fall to the venetians and the rest of these crusaders and over the next 3 days they subject it to one of the most brutal sackings the world has ever seen they break into churches and into monasteries and they loot absolutely everything out of them that isn't nailed down. They steal or destroy old and valuable priceless works of art that have been collected in the city over the, over the centuries. They burn down the great library of Constantinople. They ruthlessly rape and slaughter the inhabitants of the city and uh, they make an absolute farce of this whole process here. They put a prostitute on the throne in the Hagia Sophia and she's singing all these dirty songs while drinking out of, you know, whole 
holy goblets and all the other stuff that they had uh, that they'd nicked from all the temples and things. So absolute debauchery, absolute disrespect. One of, as I say, one of the most brutal and uh, and uncompromising sackings that a city has ever been subjected to. All up, this is this is where it's really just staggering to to, to listen to the numbers involved. All up, the Crusaders loot nearly one million silver marks from the city. One million. Consider the fact that the Venetians were charging 85,000 marks to to, to transport all these crusaders across to Egypt, and the crusaders end up looting a million marks from the city of Constantinople. They pay the Venetians the uh, the 150,000 marks that they owed them, and then they uh, divide up another 150,000 between the Crusaders themselves. Now, this means that the knights and the nobility, the people who are sort of in the upper echelons of society, actually steal more than half a million of these marks uh, for, between themselves, and they didn't share anything with anyone. Nonetheless, the Venetians are happy because they've been paid what's owed to them and then some, and, and the Crusaders on the ground are happy because they've had their pockets lined as well, and all of these other blokes are well and truly happy because, of course, they have, uh, you know, they've, they've made out like actual bandits in, in, in a literal sense as, as well as a figurative one. So how does this story end? What's the what's the sort of the the finish point for this farcical attempt at a you know at a crusade to to recapture Jerusalem and the Holy Land? Well, I mean, some of the Crusaders, they do go on to the Holy Land, but absolutely nothing came of it, essentially. Most of them actually just end up going home. You know, these, the, the the scattered few who made it all the way there obviously never really had much of an impact, and uh, and obviously the, the, the Crusade was effectively over by this stage anyway. Uh, pope Innocent III, he made a very, very big show of, of absolutely slamming all of these Crusaders who, slacked, uh, who, who sacked Constantinople, makes a big song and dance about how awful and how terrible they are and how they've been excommunicated and all of the rest of that stuff, and then uh, starts to go pretty quiet when he accepts all of the sacks of of jewels and gold uh, that uh, some of the Crusaders actually bring back to Rome for him, Uh, so turns out he's uh, not so innocent after all by the end of it. Anyway, it was also effectively the end of any kind of friendship or or goodwill between the Catholic and and the Orthodox churches, and and they already didn't get on well, and and from now... Uh, from now on, you know, it essentially only gets a lot worse for these uh, for these two churches there because of this, you know, horrific debacle that's that's gone on between the two of them. But much more importantly, much more importantly to to this whole story from a you know sort of a more global perspective, is the fact that the, the sack of Constantinople it hugely, hugely weakened the Byzantine Empire politically and militarily. The Byzantine Empire was a bulwark against Islam from the east, and and the sacking of Constantinople took such a a huge amount of wind out of the sails uh, of the Byzantine Empire that, uh, you know, they weren't able to do the job that they'd done previously in in holding back invading Islamic forces. And this means that the Turks are eventually able to capture the city in 1453, which marks not only the end of the Byzantine Empire, but also the downfall of Christianity in Anatolia, which which means that the Fourth Crusade, on on a sort of, on a a very wide level, you know, if we really zoom out and look at its overall effect here, the Fourth Crusade, which again began as an attempt to weaken the presence of Islam in the Near East, it actually did the complete bloody opposite.
But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the fourth crusade. And, of course, it all ended pretty badly for bloody Pope Innocent III there. Although, I guess he did get his, his palms greased by the end of it, which is more or less all you, all you want at the end of the day. So maybe a happy ending for him after all. But certainly not a happy ending for any uh, any Christian attempts to overtake the holy city of Jerusalem because, of course, it never falls to, uh, to, to invading Christians uh, ever again for the rest of history. So that is the way that it goes there. Uh, closing things out, of course, a few housekeeping things. If you want to jump on our website, you can... Uh, you can have a look at everything there at uh, halfasthistory.net. Find everything you need to know about the show there. But uh, that's just about that for this week. We're going to finish things off, of course, with, uh, well, it's actually not from a Reddit historian this week. It's from a scientist on Reddit, scientist by the name of Chief Dragging Canoe, who asks, if Catholics only have Mass on a Sunday, does that mean they cease to exist for the rest of the week? 